Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Vischer. Today on the show, we have Dr. Jonathan Williams here to talk about his book. It's an excellent book as well. Jonathan, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Yes, uh, Christopher, thanks so much for having me on your program. Um, I'm really honored to be here. You just told me that you read my book. I feel very honored um, that you've already finished it. So uh, I, I don't think it took you as long to read it as it took me to write it. <laughs> but uh, that's the way things work. Um, anyway, just so people know a little bit about who I am, I pastored for 35 years. And uh, my core gift is a teaching gift. Um, and then after 35 years in the pastorate, I launched a ministry called WGS Ministries, where um, my teaching, I focused on two things, my teaching and storytelling. And uh, so I teach on different, um, in ven different uh, venues, uh, different ways it gets out across the world. We've been able to touch people on every continent. That's been a great blessing. And then several years ago, I got involved in storytelling where I train uh, pastors uh, right now in Pakistan and India uh, to go through the Bible through telling the stories of the Bible. So rather than preaching sermons to people, I train them on how to go through the gospel and how to go through scripture just by telling the stories of scripture. And it's working very well, and we're seeing many wonderful things happen with that. Yeah, it seems that uh, human beings tend to, they, they love the stories more than they like just raw information. They don't like information being fed to them. If uh, the the very charismatic preachers will will tie in a little anecdote or something like that, right. or, or a little vignette, and that will capture the audience. Whenever we, we listen to a charismatic preacher, I, I ask my boys, hey, Take a look at what he does, what his style is, how he reaches people. People are people people. They love people. They love knowing about people. They love personalities. Yeah. They attach to personalities. And so it's a little hard for me because I, I'm an information guy. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. And like I said, my core gift is teaching. So I, I love to pour it out. And of course, uh, I, I, I guess I would have to have a, a gift like that to write a book. I'm, uh, I'm very interested in theology. A lot of times when people hear that I'm involved in storytelling and in training others, um, they think I'm not interested in theology. I'm not interested in studying the word of God, but I am. So, Right. Okay. So uh, the other day I was listening to your interview with Layton Flowers. Yeah. And uh, so one of the things I love about your book is you, you come in hard right away explaining that uh, Romans 9, the book of Romans, is not a theological treatise. It is, in fact, uh, a specific writing to a specific people for specific yeah. problems in, in their area. And so here, here's a quote I got from your book. For centuries, many thought Romans 9 to be purely or at least primarily a theological treatise. It is as if Paul locked himself in a room for a few days and hammered out his theology without much thought of the particulars of any church he was overseeing. We, we read 1 and 2 Corinthians and see the numerous problems that evoked Paul's urgent letters. We read 1 and 2 Thessalonians and see Paul writing to young believers to help them through some confusion about the return of Christ. But many thought Romans was different. After his introduction in the in the first 15 verses, Paul appeared to present a treatise of his thoughts on the gospel, sort of like a project he had saved for a rainy day or a prison term that he could not get to because of the press of urgent matters from the churches he oversaw. 
once he found time, he could turn to that great theological project of his heart. You point out, no, Romans is all about social concerns, Gentile yeah. Jewish dynamics. He is writing for the same reason. I, I hear it all the time. People are like, oh, yeah, Paul has these pastoral letters. And then he has this theological treatise that he writes. Yeah, right, right, and, right. And, and that's, that's how I was. That's what I thought too for many years. So right, I, I remember listening to Bob Enyard. Bob Enyard said that something like that. It's like, oh, this is this is his theological treatise, but that's just not the case. And so Leighton Flowers in your interview that I referenced, uh, he said, "You come at it from a story perspective. I come at it from a doctrinal perspective." And I just kind of like died inside a little bit it's like you have you have to come at it from from the perspective that he's writing to current issues current problems yes that's correct it doesn't work i let me see if i can't pull it up here i i drew a cartoon because i've interacted with a lot of calvinists in my day and uh romans 9 has of course been the subject of conversation yeah show this cartoon that i wrote about Corporate election rather than individual election. Calvinists like to think Roman nine, it, Romans 9 is about individual elections. And this cartoon has two people dialoguing back and forth about whether it's talked <laughs> corporately or individually. And uh, one of the most of these comics that I draw are based on conversations I've actually had with Calvinists. But it yeah. goes right through Romans 9 talking about the different groups. Romans 9 to 3, Paul addresses the nation of Israel. Yep. Romans 9 8, Paul explains Israel, includes some Gentiles, excludes some Israelites. Yep. Romans 9 30, Paul says Gentiles have obtained righteousness, contrasted to Israel in Romans 9. Yep. And so it's walking the Calvinists through every single national corporate reference within Romans 9, then goes yeah. into 11. And it concludes, <laughs> it concludes with this. So you're telling me that Romans 9 has nothing to do with the social political dynamics of Jewish Gentile relations in the context embedded of the embedded notion of Jewish superiority among Jewish Christians, pride, which even ancient non-Christians comment on. And furthermore, the context of Romans 9 is about God electing people arbitrarily for eternal life as opposed to choosing a special people group, which is then discarded after they choose to rebel and replaced by Gentiles who could choose to believe all of which can be reversed again based on their actions, Romans 11, 20 through 23. And you, you point this out in the book and you claim the context of Roman 9 enforces your position. And then the Calvinists <laughs> is like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. In this book, you point out this is all about Gentile Jewish international dynamics. Correct. Yes. And, and when you say international, I think we should just uh, look at just what was going on in the city in Rome, just trying to get Gentile and Jew to live together in harmony in Rome for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of those Jews who had not yet believed. So very pastoral letter. He had very pastoral aims when he wrote this letter. Yeah, it seems to me. So, uh, so some takeaways I got from your book is uh, you're, you're pointing out the fact that He's writing to all Jews, not e not even just Christian Jews, but non-Christian Jews as well, trying to convince them as well about the grafting in of the Gentiles. And then well, you point out, yeah, I would say he's right. He's writing specifically to those who know Christ. We'd have to look at how 
how it begins, if uh, what he says in, in the opening words of Romans, but he's writing because, at, at least these chapters in, in Romans 9, he's writing because he's very concerned about his brethren who do not yet believe. And so that's very much his focus. He's very concerned about them. The curse is going to, uh, uh, to come upon them. So uh, I'm just looking at the first verse here, uh, how Paul, the first verse is how Paul began this letter. And then, but in verse seven, he says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So specifically, he was writing to followers of Jesus, the Messiah, but he had a much broader aim in mind, wanting to reach those who did not get embraced Jesus. Yeah. And that community is probably one and the same and intermingled with non-Christian Jews still worshiping at synagogue. And yes. so that that's who he's debating. Um, w- one book that I highly recommend is Walter Bergerman's Theology of the Old Testament, uh, which trains the mind to read all scripture as advocacy. The Old Testament, mm-hmm. what's that advocating? The true God rather than the false gods. It's trying to convince the people of something. Yeah. Romans, it's a letter about advocacy. So Paul is trying to convince a hostile audience, a hostile audience. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, they're like, oh, I read Romans very passively and I just take it all in. And that's how how the ancient reader must have read it. That's not how the ancient reader is reading it. He's writing to a hostile audience that doesn't want to believe what he's writing. And he's trying to convince them of something material. And so then you have to go through his arguments as you do within the book. Yeah. And so uh, you want to summarize what you believe Paul's mission statement is, what what is he trying to convince his hostile audience to believe? I, I, I think what Paul was dealing with, and if we look specifically at Romans chapter 9, is the question, how can you say that God's plan has gone forward if most of the Jewish people have not believed? And the premise of that is that God elected the Jewish nation to be the means by which he would reach the rest of the nations. So uh, the way I like to to say this is that the elect were chosen for the sake of the non-elect. It's not that some were chosen for salvation and the rest were uh, bypassed or chosen for damnation, but they were chosen to be a light to the world. And so yeah, to bring that forward. Election is to a role, right? Election is to a job. Yes, that's ex- exactly right. And so if that was Israel's role to be a light to the nations, how can you say that, that, that God's program to be a light to the nations has gone forward if obviously we look around and we see that Israel is not saved. Israel is not following the Messiah. That's the premise of chapter nine. And that's what Paul explains how God has worked. And that gets into the story. So the way I paraphrase it in the book is I say, uh, Paul would answer, well, let's look at the story of our people. Let's look at our history and let's see how God worked. Thus, we have the title Romans nine and the story Paul was telling. Right. So if I'm a hostile Jew, I get this letter from a guy I never met. Paul, he's writing me and he's saying, uh, Gentiles are now equal to the Jews. Now, I grew up in in this hypothetical in a a Jewish worldview in which the Jews were the elect chosen priest people. And I think that that just contradicts anything I've ever heard. I, I have all these promises within the Old Testament 
promising uh, Abraham, the sons, uh, multitudes. God can't be done with his chosen people. We're the covenant people. We can't be grafting in the Gentiles. And so Paul has to start this argument to try to convince them that, yes, this can be the case. And so one of his starting arguments is that not all of Israel is counted Israel. There, there are yeah. people within, within historical Israel who are blood Israelites who are not part of Israel. So God can, in fact, choose certain segments of Israel to be his elect or chosen or to work through those people. It's, it's their blood ties that they think saves them don't don't in fact save them it's kind of like the pharisees uh yeah. The, the, yeah. the scribes who went to john the baptist and he said hey don't think just because you're children of abraham you could be saved god could kill all the children of abraham and make new children of abraham through these rocks that's god exactly god can right. do things yeah yeah that's that, that, so what you have done now chris is that you have gotten into the first story that paul was telling so when he says let's look at the history of our people so Abraham had two sons. Actually, he had many, many sons after after Isaac was born. So, but the but the two ones he but the two that he brings out are Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was, but nobody would say that Ishmaelites are Jewish people. And then he goes on from uh, goes on from there to talk about uh, Jacob and Esau. No one in their right mind in the first century would say that. Esau, who was a, uh, you know, people could argue, well, Ishmael was only half because he was born from Hagar. And that's why uh, Paul introduced the second story about Jacob and Esau. So you have Isaac and Rebekah fully in line. There's no concubine on the side. And through one act, they were both conceived. And so they're equal in that way. But nobody in their right mind would say that the Edomites were Jewish people. They were not. They were Edomites. And so Paul says, look at the history of our people. Here you have a full grand, 100% grandson of Abraham, but he's not part of the chosen people. God only works through some. And so in the same way, Paul was saying, in our day, God is working only through some of his people. And so if you look at the way your book is structured, the first half of your book, you go through and talk about how you read the whole passage. The right. second half, you contrast with the way the Calvinist reads the passage. Right. And so think of your argument right there. You're saying Paul has an audience. Their audience believes this thing that he doesn't want them to believe. And so he sets up a grand argument to convince them otherwise. The Calvinist right. narrative is... Paul is just telling a bunch of people who he thinks are predestined to heaven and hell, and he's just expounding on things that have no conceivable effect on their mentality, telling them that God hates some and, and loves others, and which which or which is ineffectual if Paul's a Calvinist. It's like what is it doesn't make any sense. The, the narrative, correct. the Calvinist narrative makes no sense. Paul is writing meaninglessly. Maybe predestined to write meaningless nonsense that has no effect yeah. on his audience for no apparent reason. It doesn't do anything. Rather than the more natural narrative is Paul is trying to convince people who reject him, who don't like him, uh, who who he has to beg favor for. He says, "Oh, I wish I were accursed for your sake." You know, it's. For all of Israel's sake, I wish I was accursed. Listen to me. I'm the good guy. I, I'm. I'm not bad guy. 
I, I want to convince you. I want to save you. I want to help you. And he's like begging these people to believe the things he's saying. Um, yeah. he, re he really cares about converting his reader, his hostile reader who doesn't want to want to agree with his stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I don't from from the way I described it just a few minutes ago, uh, when I was talking about kind of the premise behind Romans 9, no Calvinist would disagree with anything I said. They, they would agree there's an Israel within Israel. Every Right up to this point, we are in 100% agreement. The question is, and where there is a division here, the question is, is on what basis uh, are they Israel? And the Calvinist answer is, they are Israel because before the foundation of the world, God elected those individuals to salvation and bypassed the others or condemned them to hell. But Paul's answer is that they are Israel because they believe. That's the basis. And that is what Calvinists do uh, not accept and where they, they go off, or as I say, they've gone off the trail. And they don't follow Paul's reasoning. One of the things on this is how Paul concludes Romans 9 with uh, verses 30 through 33. As I say in my book, this would have been, if Paul was advocating unconditional election to salvation, this would have been the spot where Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness because God elected them before the foundation of the world to be saved and bypassed others. This would have been the spot to proclaim unconditional election to salvation, but Paul didn't do it. What does he do? He talks about faith. So the Israel within Israel is based upon people believing, not upon some preordained choice by God before the foundation of the world. Yeah, so in your book, you deal mostly with uh, John Piper, but uh, James White wrote a book called The Potter's Freedom, and yeah. uh, he goes over like Romans 9, and he like skips Paul's conclusion about right. what, what the entire meaning of the chapter is. He says, what shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, but by works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And then Paul, you point out, is not done with Israel. Uh, God is not done with Israel within the text. Later on, it talks about Israel being grafted back in. Uh, Correct. And uh, they, they are, there's a future purpose for them. So the distinction of Israel and Gentiles does not fade away. It's not like uh, we're Israel now, and it's like... and. Uh, Israel's still a people group with a purpose. And one of the big takeaways from your book is you point out that he's talking to current Israel. It's not a future generation of Israel. It, he wants the current Israel to turn to God, the current yeah. unbelievers in Christ, yeah. to turn and repent. And so yeah. it's not some sort of future eschatological hope. Yes, that, that's exactly right. And so it does not make logical sense, and you have referred to this already, nor does it make emotional sense. So let's talk about the logical part first. If if Paul is talking about people who were unconditionally elected to damnation or bypassed, 
why does he then turn right around in chapter 10 and verse 1 and say, brother, my heart's desire for them is for their salvation. And so the way I the way I ask it in the book, it's it's poor grammar, but it's on it's poor grammar on purpose to get home the point. My question is, who is the them in chapter 10 and verse 1? My prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, Calvinists like to talk about, well, we have to go out and, and share the gospel. I'm grateful that they say that. We have to go out and share the gospel because we don't know who the elect are. And so they, they kind of, uh, in that and from their perspective, that would be true. And so they kind of skirt around Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. But that's not what Paul is after here. He, in chapter 10, he's talking about the same people that he talked about in chapter 9 who had missed God's purpose for their life. So he still holds out hope for them. And so, so there is a, a logical, a, an exegetical uh, conundrum that Calvin has faced that I have yet to hear anyone address and answer. And then, so that's one thing. Then there's a second thing. There is an emotional problem. How can Paul, in the beginning of chapter 9, express himself with such passion? I have great sorrow. I have unceasing grief in my heart. And one of the things I point out is that in the Greek text, this is an imperfect, where Paul isn't just talking about one moment of an emotional outburst that he felt, but he's talking about something that was ongoing, like this burden that, that was just pressing upon him continually about the unbelief of his people. But how could Paul express such passion for these people who have rejected Christ, and yet he has in his back pocket a doctrine, well, they weren't elected to salvation to begin with. That just makes no emotional sense whatsoever. None of his arguments make sense if he's trying to explain Calvinism. It just, it, it does not work. Let me, let me, let me say, uh, let me say one other thing, Chris, about this. And you alluded to it uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, when you talked about, uh, you, you were kind of talking about the categories in people's minds and how they thought in the first century. The Calvinist approach to this is what we call anachronistic. That is, is taking things from a future time and putting them back into the first century. And in the first century, people were not talking about unconditional election to salvation. I say, I say in my book, um, well, let's see what N.T. Wright here says. Okay, so here's N.T. Wright. Wright. Uh, for too long, we've read scripture, scripture with the 19th century eyes and 16th century questions. It's time we get back to reading with first century eyes and 21st century questions. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. But I got a quote for, from your book ready to go. Go I'll ahead. Your book real quick. What did I say? I can't remember. <laughs> Armenians didn't exist then, nor did Calvinists. I mean, Paul was talking about something different from the centuries later debates that developed in church history. What many talk about when they read about Romans 9 is different from what Paul was talking about. The centuries brought a major disconnect in understanding the subject matter. We have forgotten or never learned the story Paul was telling. That's right. 
So what was what was the pressing issue of his day? The pressing issue that Paul was dealing with was bringing Gentiles into the body as equal members with Jewish people without having to become Jews. And one of the things I share in my book, and it, it's, it's very clear, and uh, I don't think anybody would, even a Calvinist would disagree with this, is that uh, it's very clear that Gentiles would be saved eventually. At least some of the Gentiles would be saved. That's no problem. And so there was an expectation of Gentiles coming in. The issue, and it took a special revelation from God to the Apostle Paul, the issue is that Gentiles do not come in as second-class citizens, nor if they want to be first-class citizens in the kingdom of God, they do not have to be circumcised, and they do not have to subscribe to all the details of the Mosaic law. That's what the Jerusalem council was all about. And, and I may say here, that that is also why Paul suffered as he yeah. went from synagogue to synagogue. He was not because I, he was a Calvinist preaching to Arminian congregations and they were whipping him for that. I he think was, in Ephesians, he says, this is why I'm in chains. I'm literally yeah. in jail because of circumcision. And like the Old Testament talks about circumcision like a handful of times, a dozen times. He talks about it all the time. He's got hundreds of references. He goes to jail over it. Yeah. He gets beaten uh, 39 stripes five times uh, for this and all kinds of other suffering because this would this just cut across the grain of centuries of tradition. So that was the issue that Paul was wrestling with in the first century. How can I get this thing together? where there's Jew and Gentile in one body, where there's not two churches, but there's one church where there's equal members. This is the gospel of the grace of God. And Calvinists, I'm sorry to say, uh, have, have missed this. And they have imported, uh, as uh, Wright said, 16th century arguments. We might also say they have imported 5th century arguments. It, it all began with Augustine. And yes. him and his uh, debate with Pelagius in importing his issues back into first century documents, they were not even thinking along those lines. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so in, in the plot of the Bible, God attempts to work through a humankind in general. It fails. There's a flood. He tries to work through Noah and his family. It fails. Eventually, he gets Abraham and he creates a priest nation. And a priest is a mediator between God and man. And so this priest nation, their goal is to be a light into the world. And so a lot of the apocalyptic prophecies within the Old Testament has a future redemption of the world where Israel is in a prime place and you have the foreigners bringing goods to Israel. Like, yep. like they're, subservient, they're a subservient class. And so Gentiles were always part of the plan. But as you point out, they were in a subservient role. What yes. Paul is preaching... Uh, Ephesians uh, 3, 6, the mystery is that they're fellow members and fellow partakers of the body. They, they are mm -hmm. on equal level, equal footing. And this is why they hated them. They tried to kill him in Acts. They tried to kill him when he goes to Jerusalem. They, they take a vow. Hey, we will not eat until this guy is dead. He's, right. he's preaching this completely blasphemous idea that God's covenant with Israel is no longer.
And so yeah. this is this is what Paul has to fight against. This is what his letter is meant to do is to actually address these types of people who hate him and want him dead and convince them that what he's saying is the truth. And That's so right. it's a multi-tiered argument. Yeah, this is the gospel. This is the truth. I do I do love my people and I am trying to get my people reconciled with Gentiles together in one body because that was God's plan all along for the world. So, and you know, when you think about it, what God asked Paul to do was, the more I think about it, the, the more astounded I am that um, it, it just seemed almost an impossible task because, because there are centuries you know, people say, well, God can change a person's mind just like that. When I guess theoretically that's true, but that's not how God works. And you have centuries of tradition that need to be turned upside down. And it took a man of learning like Paul uh, and a man who was full of zeal. He was of the Shamite sect of the Pharisees. They were the really zealous, conser hardcore conservative ones, a man of energy and zeal like him, and passion and dedication. God looked down and he saw this man is, is the perfect man for this task that I have. <coughs> Excuse me just a second. I've been talking all morning through other calls, so <coughs> I'm losing my voice here a little bit. I think it also took a, a overthrow of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where the power structure of the church had to move to Gentile centers, which were more receptive, a little bit more receptive to Paul's yeah. messaging. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So anyway, so, um, you know, I, I really, in addition to theology, I really love history. And so to be able to combine uh, the word of God, to understand it within its historical context has been a real blessing for my life. And I really want to pass that on to other people to understand the historical context for everything in the Bible. Um, and it, it just helps us to understand uh, understand it in, in a better way. I, I hope that people will, will get my book and they will read it. I think they will understand the historical context of Romans and, and then more specifically, the historical context of Romans chapter 9. Yeah, I, I think this, this is probably the best book about Romans 9 that's on the market. You go through the entire story of what it's telling, and then you talk about the absurdities of the Calvinist reading. It's like, well, if he was arguing this, this wouldn't make sense. And and then yes. you give examples. And then you talk about their talking points. Like you point out that um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's a comparative listing. You know, this, this yeah. it's a it's an idiomatic category. Correct. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't say mean you go out and hate your parents. Uh, when if you want to follow him, it's it's just a comparative standing. Comparatively, you love Jesus so much, it looks like hatred of your parents. Yeah, it, it's idiomatic and it's also covenant language. That's the way in the ancient world. Uh, if you entered a covenant with someone, then you had <clears throat> you had a love relationship with them. Those who rebelled, they were in a in a quote hate relationship. It's not talking emotionally so much. I also like to point out. That whereas in the Old Testament, it says one time that God hated Edom. It says two times that God hated Israel, <laughs> his covenant people. And so uh, 
Uh, you're breaking up. Uh, yeah. I, okay. There, there you go. Okay, we, and we're back. So it said yeah, two back. times that God came in Israel. So anyway, yeah. So you mentioned the format of my book. I, I did write it. I have an introductory chapter, chapter one, and then I did write it in in uh, two sections. So part one, which is which is chapters two through five. Uh, explains Romans 9 as if there is no debate, as if there's no such thing as Calvinism or a non-Calvinist position. That's how I wrote it. Uh, part two of the book begins in chapter six, and that's where I interact with John Piper's book called The Justification of God. This is a book he wrote back in the 1990s. Uh, he updated it in the 2000s. Uh, it's his exegesis of Romans 9, 1 through 23. Um, he did a, a really good job in some respects of naming some of the trees, but he, he misnamed the whole forest. He didn't understand the whole forest. I also uh, uh, picked John Piper's book uh, without, hopefully without picking on him, not that it would matter to him. He, he doesn't even know who I am. I don't matter to him at all, but I picked that book because I believed it is the best. It's very complex. It can get tedious at times, very technical. I've read it four times now, uh, just to make sure I understand exactly what he is saying. So I, I say in my book, I wanted to present the best. Piper's um, uh, um, spirit in which he wrote it, it was a peaceful, ironic spirit. He wasn't coming across harshly uh, against those who did not agree with him. He recognizes there are other godly people. And I recognize that there are Calvinists who really love the Lord and who are who are very godly. In fact, I go to a Calvinist church. Uh, it's it, and they are five point Calvinists, but they don't emphasize it very much. And uh, they they love the Lord. Our worship time is great. I I love the pastor. He and I have a great relationship. He knows where I stand. But I will in the next week or two give him a copy of my book. So, <laughs> so <laughs> that might convert him. It might might in fact convert him. And we'll, so yeah. We'll see. I grew up in uh, Calvinist churches. The good thing about Calvinist churches is they tend to go over like the Bible, like verse by verse. And it, when you do that, it filters out like ninety percent of their Calvinism because they, they have to they have to focus on the text. That's right. And so, often, it, often my pastor has preached. He, I said, "Man, you don't sound like a Calvinist at all." As I'm sitting there listening to him, or you don't even pray like a Calvinist should pray, you know. So. It's just very good. So anyway, I, I hope to to write. Uh, I hope that I have written this in a way not to demean anyone or to create more friction, but to that I have written it in such a way that will promote peace, that will promote discussion and a serious uh, reinvestigation of these passages. So it looks like we've got a question here. Yeah, Sam says, why would you subject yourself to such an auditory abuse as attending a Calvinist church? <laughs> <clears throat> because with this particular church, because I know the pastor, <clears throat> I know his heart for the Lord. And in my, <clears throat> he, he is an outstanding scholar and preacher. He's only like 40, 41 years old. He's a young man compared to me, at least. And uh, he, he is an excellent, excellent expositor of God's word. And uh, I am uh, almost, without, almost without fail, I am engaged theologically with him and in spirit with, with his heart. 
And so um, I want to learn from him. And let me just say that I have read many other John Piper books and I have benefited greatly from them. In the three years I've been there, election, the the topic of unconditional election has been preached only one time in the, in the three years. And that was by the assistant pastor. And he did it based upon um, Genesis 47 or 48, where Jacob was talking to Pharaoh and says, the God who has shepherded me all these years has been with me. And somehow he found the doctrine of unconditional election back there. And, Thankfully, we had lunch scheduled for the for a few days later, and I got with him and I said, "Brother, I know how you believe, and you know how I believe, but I just don't see unconditional election in that passage." And, and so I just kind of gently reproved him for that, and he received it and he appreciated it. So in my three years to get back to that question, it's that was the only time, and it's just barely been referenced the other times, and so that's how I can subject myself in this church. Right. I find that choosing a church, you kind of want to pick the right people group. You don't want a bunch of like weirdos. You want people that your kids can interact with that are semi-normal. And sometimes the Calvinist church is going to be your only option. And then, and then when they preach verse by verse, all their Calvinism goes out the window. Yeah. Uh, Talking about your experience real quick. We, we went to the Calvinist church growing up and one day the lead pastor was he had to go attend the funeral of his friend, a different pastor from a different church. And so the youth pastor stepped up to, to preach a sermon. And he basically, because he's a Calvinist, he said, God killed this pastor's friend so I could preach this sermon. And it was the most terrible sermon I've ever, it was like, uh, <laughs> like a 90s PowerPoint slides with transitions. It is like so terrible. It's like, I don't think God killed the pastor's friend for this friend. I, I just, I don't think so. But uh, back to Jacob and Esau real quick. One of my favorite yeah. stories from the Bible is like God God didn't hate Esau. Esau prospered. He did better than Jacob. And so one mm-hmm. of my favorite stories is Jacob's coming back to meet Esau. He's like, oh, this guy, my brother is probably really mad at me and wants to kill me. So uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all the people that are with me. And then I'm going to arrange them in order from the people who are most expendable to the least expendable. Right. And I will walk in a line. And then if he attacks, he'll kill all the servants first. And then he'll get to the, get to the farmhands. And then he'll get to the soldiers. Yeah, and then yeah. hopefully my family could flee by that time. But it, it was a happy reunion. I, his brother prospered so well that he really didn't hold a grudge against his younger trickster brother. And he seems to have yeah. forgiven him. So Esau yeah, wasn't they, like hated. hated. Right. Uh, yeah. He, they, 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 they normal and, life. And the, 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 the last mention that we have of Jacob and Esau is that they buried their father in peace when Isaac died. They together buried him. And then the scripture goes on and talks about Esau's descendants twice in scripture. It uh, gives us uh, the family line of Esau. They were important. And I think, you know, and I. I uh, you just broke up. And so you're going to okay. have to repeat that thought. Okay. Um I'm trying, let's see, where did I break up? So I just want to say, tells us. yeah, scripture tells us in Deuteronomy 23, I believe it is, that God had a path for the Edomites to come into Israel. Uh, they, God wanted them to come in eventually and be part of the worshiping community. And that actually did happen a little bit throughout history. There's not a whole lot on that. 
uh, but we especially see it in the intertestamental period where Edomites uh, came into Israel. So um, after the after uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and after the Maccabean re revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, we're now in 175 BC. Uh, about 40 years after that, John Harkanus went to war against the Edomites, but his purpose was to subject them and to bring them within the fold of Israel. Not a very good form of, evangel of evangelism, but that's all they knew at that time. But their purpose was not to exterminate the Edomites. It was to bring them in and have them be part of the family. And that's that's what Romans 9 is about. So, Right. So I, I do got a summary paragraph from you about what okay. Romans is about. You all right. say, in summary, Paul was not giving an abstract theological dissertation. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Rather, he was reaching back into the history of his people when God made the promises. He is explaining how God fulfills those promises through the crucified and risen Messiah. He is explaining how God demonstrated his covenant faithfulness to his people so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the nations through them, as he promised in Genesis 12.3. This is what Romans is about. You have anything to add to that? I think that was well stated, if I may say so myself. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes when you're reading your own book, you're like, wow, that's a really good point. It's like, who wrote that? Who said yeah. that? That was really good. <laughs> happens to me when I reread my book. Uh, I was like, wow, that's a pretty intelligent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, thanks for quoting me. I'm honored that, <clears throat> that you would uh, quote me on that. So, yeah. Um, so, I, I got one last quote that I grabbed out for discussion's sake. Um, it says, Paul was now finished telling the story of his people. And he was ready to elaborate on his two main points. God has been faithful to his word, 9-6, because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, 9-6, uh, second part. But what about, but what was the distinguishing mark between the two true children of Abraham and those who are not? What distinguished them in the ancient times and what distinguishes them in Paul's day? It was faith. This is what brings us to the last verses of Romans 9. And so Romans 9 has a conclusion. The Calvinists tend to avoid, in my experience, the conclusion, what Paul's main point is. Right. Uh, but but the argument leads there. And you point out within your work, when Paul gets sidetracked side and he's dealing with these interlocutors, interlocutors who are, are criticizing him, he, he attacks their position and then he refutes their position and then he moves on. His, his attack that, uh, who are you, oh man, to talk back to God, that, that's, not, that's not part of his main argument. That's, that, that's counter to one of their points that they're making, and then he answers their objection. So yeah. that's not, it's not the purpose of Romans 9 is to get that verse out there to tell people, oh, you're, you're eternally depraved and, and you have no standing against, I, I don't it doesn't make any sense in, in Calvinism. If everything's predestined, then who really is answering against God? Yeah. And, and it's just, it's just not a real concept, but that wasn't his point in Romans nine. Yeah. That was not the thrust of his argument. His thrust of the argument is you need faith. Faith is what is the distinguishing mark. Faith is why the Gentiles are coming in. Faith is why some of Israel are not part of Israel. It's all down to faith. That's his argument. It's, you you have to have faith rather than yes. a Calvinist pre-regeneration chosen from time eternal. That's right. not what he's getting at. 
he would have wrote right. written different words. Totally, that was totally. <laughs> you froze again. Uh, you said it. That is totally. And then it's, it's a free totally, totally foreign to the first century. Nobody was thinking along those lines as you just described. It's a, a, another example of anachronism. And, you know, so when you mentioned faith, those are really the two things that, that Paul was fighting. One was that I'm OK with God because of my lineage. And the second thing he had to fight was I'm OK with God because I'm doing the works of the law. And, and that's what Paul was fighting in his time, those two things. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe uh, I do have one criticism for your book. Okay. Is, uh, you, you are, already, I'll write it down. You are overly gracious to Paul. I think Paul was a rhetorician. I think he understood how to sway people and to um, have, get them to believe things. And so some of the language he uses might be for rhetorical effect rather than rather than just pure being purely genuine. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you think that he was being just rhetorical or exaggerating in some things for the for the purpose yeah, like, of the argument. Like I wish I was accursed in place of all of Israel. I do not lie. So uh, saying something like you do not lie that kind of effect on your audience is they're going to understand that that you they're going to associate you with not lying and they're they're going to see that as an emphasis. So I think Paul knew what he's doing rather than just writing from pure exuberance if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and, sure. and and a lot of a lot of uh the times you're dealing with Paul's more inflammatory statements like who are you oh god to talk back to man. It, who are you, you a man, man to talk back to God? Yeah. Who are you a man to talk back to God? You quote yeah. other people who are treating Paul like um basically apologizing for it and saying, well, it makes sense in this case, rather than what I think when I read Galatians, sometimes Paul loses his temper. Sometimes he, yeah. he gets <laughs> out there and he's he, he's just he, he just lets loose with his tug. He pro he might actually be worked up there, and he's he might actually be trying to use uh, emotion to shut them down, uh, rather than a logical argument. He might he combines it with a logical argument, but he may in fact be we, we be going a little more than he should have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. I I received that, and uh, thank you for sharing that. So. Yeah, so that was my one criticism. I was like, "Wow, this is overly generous to Paul." I don't know if I would be that generous, but uh, <laughs> the the overall arc of your book, I think, is correct. And I wrote a book too called "God Is Open," and there's a chapter I think on Romans nine. I'll have to go check. I think that that, that exists. Uh, but uh, and I, I come to a lot of the same conclusions that you're talking about. This is this is not about individual specific election right. to eternal life. That's that's not the concerns. The concerns right. are international Jewish Gentile dynamics, how this works out within this context. Election yeah. is not election to eternal salvation. Paul says in chapter 11, he says the elect are the enemies of the gospel. Yeah. Which which be really 
I, I point that out to Calvinists. It's and then they they become struck dumb. It's like they they've never seen this verse or they haven't like internalized what that means for their theology that the elect are enemies of the gospel. Right. God's right. chosen people that he chose for a task to be a priest nation have rejected the gospel. So God needs to graft in the Gentiles to, to fulfill this role, to act in some sort of capacity that Israel has dropped the ball on. Okay, that's right. um, I, I would like to share one other thing. And as I came when I was writing the conclusion, when I was writing chapter 10, and then I have an afterward also in there, I was asking myself, you know, why am I doing this? Of course, I, I'm writing this book because I, I want the word of God to be taught clearly and correctly. But I said at the end of my book that I want to make sure that people are telling the story correctly. And I just think that's so valuable. God calls all of us to be storytellers and to tell his story correctly to the world. And that's really what I want from everyone. I want them to understand this chapter, not for the sake of scoring theological points in a debate, but so that they can clearly have the overarching narrative of scripture that really goes back to creation and then to Abraham and tell it clearly and logically to the world so that the world can hear the good news about our savior. So how do you take a teenager and make them care about first century uh, Jewish Gentile interdynamics? <laughs> do you have teenagers? Yes. Okay, I figured there was an ulterior motive for uh, asking me that question. <laughs> so, uh, because you want me to help you do that. that that's a great question. Um, how do I do that with teenagers? I have, to, I have to figure that out myself again. All my kids are out of the house. But now, <laughs> God has blessed my wife and me with a 15-year-old. Oh. Yes, we... Um, we, as I mentioned earlier, we work with people in Pakistan and uh, and have for, for years. And the persecution has ramped up again and it's very dangerous again. And so this family asked my wife and me if we would take their 15 year old daughter in. And she lives with us now and she she uh, she's very fluent in, in English. And so she lives with with us now. And so now our goal and she's she's at school right now. Our goal is not just to get her through high school. Our goal is to turn her into a godly woman. And uh, so that's what we have to do ourselves in our, our household here. She loves the Lord. and But, you know, I think ultimately everybody loves a story. You know, what do 15-year-olds like to do? They uh, they like to watch movies. and uh, And so somehow we have to show our kids that, we're not just talking about abstract doctrine. That's that's one incomplete approach to the Bible. Nor is the Bible just a book filled with um, precious promises to make us feel better when things go rough with us. It does do that for us and praise God for us for, for that. But the Bible primarily is a narrative. And somehow we have to present scripture to them in such a way that we that the world is full of stories. It's full of false stories, but we have the true story and we have 
the best story. It's even better than Lord of the Rings, believe it or not. And so if we can somehow show them that our story is the true and the best story in the world and that God wants all of us to be storytellers, I think that will go a long ways toward motivating them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe uh, explain the Jewish hatred of Christ. Maybe maybe that's what I do. I show them uh, the, the modern day Jews spitting on Christians. And I say, how can Paul convince these people that the Gentiles are equal? And here's how he tries it in Romans 9. That, that's what this is about. It's about converting the mentality of a hostile people group, yeah. dealing with people who hate him. And some some of them take vows not to eat till they kill him. Right. That's who he's dealing with. Yeah. I, I, I guess they gave up on that vow when their plan <laughs> or, went awry. Or, or they died. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of them were, oh, these people... Uh, back then uh when they brought images of i think it was caesar in the jews would just come there and sit in the streets for protests and just let themselves be slaughtered by the romans and the romans are like these people are fanatics that they just they they don't respond to reason we we can't deal with these people and so then they like they gave up and they say okay we're not going to put any more images in jerusalem because you you people are just psychopathic in in killing yourself suicidal Yeah, I think Caligula did that. Uh, I believe he was the emperor around uh, AD 37. <clears throat> he was going to put an image of himself in Jerusalem or even in the temple. And his advisors, even though he's kind of a, he was a crazy guy, his advisors told him, look, if you do this, you're going to wipe out the entire nation. They will die in mass before they allow that to happen. That's how, in one sense, it's commendable. That's how they, how committed they were to the one true God. It, it is commendable. This, but this is what Paul has to bump up against these people who are very fanatically religious. Yeah, and, and yeah. so when people question the faith of like the early Pharisees, I'm like these guys were not. These guys were definitely Yahweh worshippers, believers. They're dedicated to the Bible, dedicated to this. Paul's criticism is often, "You guys li- are living by works and not by faith," and that, yeah. that's. He says the works are a stumbling block to the Jews because you guys get so wrapped up in your your little ceremonies and stuff like that. That's not what God wants. Throughout the Bible, God often says, hey, I wanted your faith, your sacrifice. Yeah, that's all fine and good, but that's not what I really desire. I desire the relationship. I I desire the people to worship me uh, in in some sort of relate. God gains from our worship, which is not a Calvinist idea. God wants our our worship, our relationship. He wants to sing over us. He wants to cry over us. He, he wants yeah. to be with us. Yeah. You know, I, I just put out a, a Facebook post on the uh, Soteriology 101 Facebook page, and I shared my favorite insight. I said, I, I've got a lot of insights in my book. Here's my number one insight, my favorite one. And it's that God, our God, is not like the gods of paganism. And unfortunately and unwittingly, Calvinists have presented a picture of God that is closer to paganism than to the biblical revelation. I say unwittingly, unwittingly, they don't intend to do that. And my thought here is that in ancient paganism, the gods created people just to be their slaves and they never revealed themselves to the people. 
And they never sought to have a relationship with the people. And the people feared the gods. And, the, and here's the point. The gods were completely sovereign and did what they wanted to do, regardless of anything that you little peon human being did. They were sovereign. So who are you to talk back to the gods like this? And But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is different. And so for Paul or for Israel to present a God in this way, that wasn't good news, nor was it even news. That's how they already thought about the gods, that he was that way. But to have a revelation of a God who wanted to enter a love relationship and a covenant with his image bearers, that was mind-blowing, that was revolutionary, and that was the task of Israel. Our God is not like your gods. Not just that he's more powerful, but he is a relational God. That was amazing. To right. When that. when Paul's in Athens, uh, the, the crowd listens to his speech up until he gets to Jesus, Christ and Christ crucified and the resurrection. And yeah. then they they go wild. We're not listening to this guy anymore. Yeah. And they right. take off all the criticisms of the pagan idols within the Bible is they have eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot yes. hear, right. they're immobile, they have noses, they can't smell, they are just dead and lifeless. Whereas God yeah. is depicted as living and dynamic and relational. God cares about his people. God he cares. cares for the widow and for the orphan. It, it says that again and again, those who are weak, those who are destitute, those who are poor, he cares for them. That's good news that we have to proclaim. Let's be yeah. those kind of storytellers. So um, that uh, leads us to the end of the hour. And so we'll mm -hmm. kind of wrap up there. So do you have any closing thoughts or anything you want to say? We got the link to your book uh, down in the show notes, the description okay, down yeah. below. Um, you could tell people how to find you, how to find uh, your work or or anything else you got for us. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, I just want to reiterate what I said a few minutes ago. This is not only about scoring theological points, although I enjoy a good debate. I love to talk about scripture and uh, and I love to convert people to my point of view. <laughs> I, I confess I do like that. But it's so much bigger than that. This is about reaching the world with the gospel. This is about becoming good storytellers. You know, I so so while I was writing this book, while I was writing this book, I was also working with people in India and Pakistan, some of whom have been martyred in recent months as they have taken our program and gone out into the world. And so I I just want to remind everyone who's listening to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and love people enough to get the gospel out to them and tell it in a good and in a passionate way. There's no God like our God. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's a great, great uh, outro. So uh, thanks for coming, Dr. Jonathan Williams. Thanks for sharing your book with yeah. us. I, I suggest, Ed, this, this is the book to read on Romans 9. I don't think there's a better one out there. And so pick up a copy of that. Uh, it's on Amazon, right? That's what's where I pulled your picture off of. Yeah, know? it is. It is on Amazon, but I I asked people if they would buy it from our website. 
Uh, I mean, they can buy from Amazon if they want, but if they buy from our Amazon, more of the profits come to our ministry rather than in the pockets of the Amazon people. So, right. So, uh, if they buy it from your website, so buy it from yeah. your website. So, uh, if they if they just go to our website, they'll see it right on the front page, and it'll take them to the specific page where they can order it. So, that's all that I ask. Thank you. Fantastic. If anyone has any questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening. Okay.